Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. This series is sponsored by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Piecework, and Handwoven magazines. Find us online and subscribe at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Marrow. So I'm Anne Marrow from Long Thread Media, and I'm here with Shay Pendre uh, in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Thanks for thanks for being with me, Shay. Happy happy to see you. It's it's been a few years since I saw you on uh, the Needle Arts Studio. Was that was that what it was called? Yeah, Needle Arts Studio with Shay Pendre. Yes. Uh huh. And um, I can see all around me on the walls your your passion for needle arts. Oh, I've always loved the needle arts since I was ten years old. Well, one of the things we like to ask people is, uh, what is your daily uh, art and craft practice? What is it that you do uh, with your hands on a daily basis? Oh, every single day of my life, I do something. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm kind of one of those people that has to stay busy. So I stay busy till about four o'clock in the afternoon and do the mundane things in life. And then at four o'clock in the afternoon, I normally needlepoint and then I make dinner for my husband. And then after dinner, I'll either needlepoint or I'll knit. And then two full days a week, I do Japanese embroidery. It's just my passion. And uh, you, you told me about how it was that you came to be interested in, uh, in, in embroidery and stitching. Well, when I was 10 years old, I know this sounds really terrible, but it was in during World War II. And uh, my dad was leaving, and so he gave me a stamped cross-stitch. Never seen it before in my entire life. And it was a Williamsburg sampler, and I did it, and I loved it. And then I wanted to do more. My mom would always find one for me, or I wanted to learn to knit. She would send me to knit class. And I, my whole life, did something. And when I was in my eight, when I was from like 16 to 25, I did, I had show horses. But I embroidered all my clothes that I wore on my parade horses. So I've always done it. It was just part of my life. And you told me something about how you actually um, got to got to know about spinning and weaving as well. Oh, I went to Henry Ford. It was called Edison Institute where I went to school, but it was Greenfield Village Henry Ford Museum. And I started in kindergarten and went through 12th grade. And this sounds so different, but it was the same 24 kids from kindergarten through the 12th grade. One of those kids was my first husband. So anyway, I... Uh, told Henry, Henry Ford used to come into our classroom all the time because we were a living museum in the Greenfield Village. And I said to him once, I don't even know how I got up the energy to say to him, I wanted to learn to sew. So he gave me a lamb, and then they took care of the lamb, and they sheared it, and then I could card it, weave it. I had to spin it, card it, spin it, weave it, and then he would teach me to sew. And that was his motto, learn by doing. So I learned by doing. It was fabulous. And I wasn't very good at spinning. Now, uh, you said something about how um, it, it was terrible that it was a stamped canvas that you learned on. What did, what did you mean by that? Well, you, normally you do cross-stitch on a counted ground, and you count it on from a chart. But uh, back then, when I was 10 years old, I think my dad didn't think I could do that. So all the X's were stamped on the fabric, and you can imagine they're not all even or in the row. 
And so uh, I don't think I I don't think I was smart enough to know that they should be all even or cross the same way or any of the technical things. I just knew I liked doing it. And it came, you know, came with all the threads and I don't even know if I had the right amount of ply or whatever. It was just fun. I enjoyed it. Sure. And um, you you mentioned about having show horses um, in your teens and 20s, but also in your 20s, you started a business. Oh, well, I was a little older than 20. <laughs> I started a business, let's see, actually, uh, when I, after I got married and had children, I just wasn't content to stay at home, so I decided to start my own business. I opened a little tiny store, and I mean it was tiny. It was 18 feet by 36 feet. And I had no idea. I've never owned a business before. I had no idea. But my dad was a great mentor to me, kept me on the straight and narrow. And we were profitable after six months, which nobody ever does. But it just seemed the right thing for me to do. And so it just grew like topsy from that one little store to a bigger store, to two stores, to three stores, back to two, and then to catalogs, and then to TV. Just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. And how did you happen to have a, a TV show uh, about embroidery and needle arts? Well, uh, one of the things I really felt that I had written a couple books by that time, and I'm, I, this is probably not a good thing to say, but I don't like writing. So I thought, I have a lot of knowledge because I really had studied hard. I'd gone to Glasgow School of Fine Arts. I'd gone to Japan to learn Japanese embroidery. I'd gone to China to learn double-sided embroidery. So I had a lot of information in my head, and I had a lot of great mentors in my life who would teach me white work, teach me hard dunger. I was just like a sponge trying to learn all these things. And I remember saying to my husband, Don, you know, it's a shame to die with all this knowledge. I should be able to give it away. So I said, I think I'm going to start my own TV show, which of course sent him into cardiac arrest. But I just felt that I wanted the world to have this knowledge. And then I also felt I'd like to share this with a second generation. And it seemed to me TV at that time was a way to reach the second generation. So I started with no knowledge of TV, and I learned, I had a very, very good teacher in Kathy Stahl, and we together persevered, and it turned out to be highly successful, even though a lot of people were surprised, me included. So one of the things I noticed when you speak about white work and Hardinger and and these uh, Chinese and Japanese traditions is how, um, how you have learned so much about the heritage of needle arts. Oh, of course. I, You know, I, I collected 400 books on all the subject, and I read those books, and I look at those books, and it's very important for me to tell you to do, say, t- hardanger. You know, it comes from the Scandinavian countries, and it's always going to have a hole in it, and it's always going to be a uh, very set traditional, generation after generation pattern. And that was very important for me to know that and to pass that on. And then I was, because I'm sort of like a technic geek, I was always passing on exactly how they did it because uh, I just felt that was important. If I were going to say this on TV, it should be 
structurally correct, and it should be respectful of their tradition. So, and one time I'll, I just tell you this little funny story because we were getting ready to film Hardunger, and you have to cut the fabric. You you put a base around the hole in the fabric, and then you have to cut it. And I said to my film crew, listen, once I cut it, I can't do anything about it. So you can't have your your camera breakdown. There can't be any problem. Well, in doing this very carefully, I sewed it to my pants, unbeknownst to the audience and unbeknownst to anybody else. And I can't even raise it up to go forward with my second stitch. So I called cut and everybody in the studio was just stunned. And then we tried to get it out of my pants. <laughs> right? We successfully did it. Nobody knew what I had done, but it was just one of those things that happen. Got to be ready to do something about it. And I think anybody who has ever held a needle and thread can relate to accidentally <laughs> sewing one thing to sewing yourself to something else. Right. That was mean. And it wasn't a bad place to do it, but I did it. So, <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of bloopers. I mean, there are a lot of times you don't do it just perfect. So, But then I learned on TV, if I didn't do it perfect, then I'd say to the audience, you know, stop. I made a mistake. Do you see where I've made this mistake? And everybody in life is going to make a mistake with your needlework. So let me show you how to correct that mistake. And that turned out to be a really happy thing for us. People would write us notes about, so happy you did that. Some people even thought I did it on purpose, which is not true. But I, I just thought it would be more honest to say, look, what I did wrong. So it turned out to be very happy. Well, it's interesting that you you talk about imperfections because I'm sitting here surrounded by some just exquisite um, perfect embroidery that you've done in in a Japanese style, right? And and can you tell me how you um, how you came to you know appreciate and learn so much and really you know master that? Well, you know, I started to learn Japanese embroidery in the eighties, and it was I think the Lord sent this man to me. He was a Japanese uh, Tamarasan is his name, and he uh, was at the Embroiders Guild of America embroiders really seminar and I met him and I saw his embroidery and I thought it was the most beautiful silk embroidery I'd ever seen and I had studied silk work and gold work in London and gone to the Victorian Albert and everything but I saw this embroidery I couldn't believe how fabulously beautiful it was in the shine because Japanese embroidery is done with flat silk and you can't get that shine with a twisted silk so I, he didn't speak much English, and I didn't speak much Japanese, but I kind of befriended him, and in our cruel, crude way, we communicated because of the language barrier. And then I said, I would like to come to Japan. And he was sort of taken back by that. But it was very interesting because at that time, Japanese embroidery was an extremely profitable business in Japan because the uh, people who were well endowed with money, I guess would be a nice way to say it, only wore kimonos and obis to weddings and to big parties. And your kimono and your obi, the way it was embroidered and what was on it, really suggested your rank, much as a rank badge would have been in China. So that market was dwindling slowly because 
the wealthy women in Japan started to use French couturier clothing. And so their market was shrinking. And so they wanted to open a market in the United States. And here I come asking to learn it. And so we did do that. We kind of formed a partnership, and I went there and seriously learned. I I did not know the knowledge. I did not know the language. And I had to sit on my knees from 8 o'clock in the morning till noon, which was I could hardly get up. Then from 1 to 4, then we had tea, and then 4.30 to 6, and then 7 to 9 at night. And nobody spoke English to me, and I learned... I could steal the knowledge if I paid extremely good attention to how they did it. They would demonstrate for me. And just for an example, I didn't know what size needle to use, so I would always put my hands out to feel the needle so I knew if it was a big needle or a little needle. And I learned that way, and I was very, very poor at it the first time I was there. But I persevered and went back for 18 times, and the last time I learned from the National Treasure of Japanese Embroidery, which was, and we studied gold leaf, which was very interesting. But it became a passion with me, so I still, to this day, spend a lot of time doing Japanese embroidery. It is probably the most exquisite embroidery, in my estimation, in the world. So one of the things that I found surprising talking about embroidery, I, I, don't, I don't know very much about the background of these things, but my impression of needlepoint, um, which you've mentioned, is something that you do. I thought that it was just one particular stitch on, you know, a printed canvas, and you know what could be particularly interesting about that. And um, you explained that needlepoint can actually be quite diverse. Oh, absolutely! There's 300, 400 stitches on needlepoint, and now we have all these fabulous threads. I mean, you have maybe four different kinds of silk. You have metal threads. You have wool thread, you have a combination of wool and silk. I mean, you just have threads. When I first started Needlepoint, you had two or three threads and maybe two metallics, but now it's just thread after thread, which makes it so exciting. And then you have just great opportunities, and there's so many good stitch books out there. You can get yourself a painted canvas, you can get yourself a stitch book, and ask your needlework store for a combination of threads, and you can have a fabulous time. And I very seldom ever do the single stitch that's called a tenth stitch, because that's kind of boring. These other stitches are much more fun. <laughs> I'm, I'm very passionate about the fact that it would be nice to have another generation do embroidery, and so try to teach as many young people as possible, because I don't think we would like these different embroideries to die. I don't see people doing white work like they used to. I see people, I see a lot of people, young people knitting. And um, I would like to see a lot more young people do needlepoint. I would love them to be more excited about doing it because it's nice to put your phone down or not watch TV and do something with your hands. It gives you such, such pleasure. And it's, you know, it's like a Zen feeling. I do see um, some people doing, I think they're calling it, you know, contemporary embroidery. Right. And a lot of it is sort of a satin stitch or straight stitch. It's right. sort of a... I think uh, that's great. Yeah, your needle painting. I think that's fabulous. Uh-huh. And you then when you start to needle paint, then you have a lot of different threads to use to needle paint. 
So I think that's, and if you start children out doing needle painting, you know, just make a barn or something like that, then they become hooked with that idea. So, but we don't have those skills in our school anymore, in our art classes. So that would be nice to have that resurgent. So I, and I think a lot of other folks involved in the, in the fiber world, know you as, as Shea Pendre of, of Needle Art Studio. And yet um, people recently have learned about you from USA Today. <laughs> I know. So, uh, oh, my, I, so I have a second passion in life, and that is riding horses. I adore riding horses. And so I think this is really my personal feeling. USA Today was only interested in me going on a cattle drive because I was 85. If I were 35, they wouldn't. this would not have been a good article. So it did start out, 85-year-old woman goes on a cattle drive. So we all know what they were doing. But I have ridden horses all my life, and I love to go to Wyoming. My horse's name is Einstein, and he's the best horse in the world. And uh, I ride, and they have 100,000 acres to ride in. And when I ride, it's I look at the values of green, the different kinds of tones of green. I look at the aspens, and they turn yellow. And so it's a very zen feeling for me. And it's, one, it's lovely to be one with your horse. And then I go back in September because they have 6,000 head of cattle. And they, you have to get those cattle in for the winter. And so they gather the cattle and they let dudes like me participate with the really good cowboys. So it's just my passion. I'm very happy on my horse and I can get on my horse at 9 o'clock in the morning and ride till 5 and just enjoy myself. And I know that the that the stitching brings you a lot of joy, but that sure does sound a lot better to me than kneeling on the floor. Oh, right, it was. <laughs> yes, it was very hard to learn in Japan. And they were very strict masters. And, you know, they only spoke to me in Japanese until they decided I was really kind of going to be good at this. And then they would get some English words out. But I enjoyed every minute of it. And I learned what I thought was a secret in world, you're better off to be a listener than a talker. And I had to listen, even though it was in Japanese, but I had to pay attention. And I had to have a serenity in my life to just sit there and be patient to learn what they showed me. And I'll tell you another little story, because you would know the next day, they never said good, bad, or indifferent. You'd know the next day, because they came into the classroom and lined up in how they stitched on the left-hand side was the most best stitcher. That's probably not good English, but that's what it was. And the bottom of the line was the least stitcher. And so when they looked at your work, what you had done the day before, if you had done a good job, you got a really good stitcher. If you'd done a bad job, you got the least, and you're not worth their time to teach. So it made you straighten up in a hurry and work really hard this second day so that you got a better teacher the third day without ever saying a word. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you probably wouldn't go over in the United States very well, but it was the way they did it. That's how they you learned. And isn't that kind of, you know, the way it is with, with, with needlework in general? Yeah. That is the way they did it. It, it doesn't require words. And it doesn't each require other. words. And I never argued. My mother always say, when I'm Rome, do as the Romans do. So I never, ever argued. 
in any way or disrespectful to their culture. So I learned to love their culture. I learned to love their food. I mimicked everything they did. And Master Saito at that time, one time, said to me, he said, you sponge. You just sponge it all up, and you must have been Japanese in a different life, which I'm not sure about that, but he felt that way. He strongly felt that way. And I felt very comfortable there, even though nobody ever spoke English to me. And I would stitch for two or three weeks, and and they stitch six days a week. They only have Sunday off. The only thing I ever really did when I got back home was I had a Diet Coke <laughs> because I liked Diet Coke and they didn't obviously have that. I was tired of green tea. So I, I thought it was a wonderful experience. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And I will uh, let you get back to one of your, one of your various beautiful canvases. And um, just thanks so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Thank you.